Um, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at uh, on our inaugural captive briefing webinar. Um, and I'm welcoming you from uh, from the office. And um, we've just about got uh, about half the team back in the office here at Guernsey Finance. Uh, so it's a great a great pleasure to be with you and to be sat here. I have to say, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dominic Wheatley. Uh, I'm the chief exec uh, of Guernsey Finance. Um, and I'm going to be introducing uh, and making a few comments, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on to the panel session that uh, I'm sure you've, uh, you, you're all looking forward to as much as I have. Um, uh, I think, uh, as, as the old curse has it, um, may you live in interesting times. And when I sat down and started thinking about what I would say, uh, just as a few opening comments today, um, it was indeed interesting times. Um, already, uh, and since then, of course, we've got riots breaking out all over America, and the times have become even more interesting. Um, uh, not, not least because of the, uh, the undermining of the established trade links uh, between Europe um, and, uh, uh, and, and the UK with Brexit process, um, breakdown in some, some extent in communication and trading uh, relations between the, two, the world's two largest economies. We can see capital markets being uh, being distorted still by uh, long-term low interest rates, um, and even free market capitalism itself uh, is, to some extent, under the microscope as a result of imperfect markets, bad market practices, and concerns about growing inequality within and between societies. More parochially, um, in the insurance market, we're uh, it, we're seeing at the start of reactions to uh, tightening capital and reduced investment returns, along, of course, with uh, the concerns that underwriters have uh, about an increasing risk in environment um, and, uh, and the more volatile world uh, alongside greater globalization and, of course, the ever-increasing reliance on technology uh, and data. Even more parochial, of course, uh, looking at the captive world, um, captives and captive jurisdictions are having to respond to changing regulatory uh, and tax environmental uh, environmental pressures, um, including the governance and operational challenges of substance, um, whilst at the same time developing new lines of cover that the clients need um, and managing the changing program structures and global delivery arrangements uh, as the insurance market develops. And then, of course, into all of this comes the world's largest pandemic for 100 years, um, which has exacerbated all of those political strains um, and added to the overall risk profile and is exposing fragilities in many existing supply chains and operational strategies, as well as forcing us to find new ways to work and communicate uh, on a socially distanced basis, of, of which, of course, this morning's uh, webinar is an example. We had originally planned to do this as a, an event in London. Um, in common with all other areas of corporate activity, of course, risk managers are facing all the new challenges um, and need to find new ways to analyze uh, and respond to them. Um, so what better time is there, is there to review and examine the role of captives uh, and um, uh, and, and how, how they can help in meeting this new and complex risk uh, environment. Uh, to help us with this, we have a, a fantastic panel, uh, which combines the broking and advisory power of 
Aon and Willis, although I think um, that uh, power is going to be joined in more ways than one uh, in, in the not too distant future. But we have with us today Kieran Healy of Aon and James Battersby uh, of Willis. And we also have the captive experience uh, of Mike Johns, the chair of the Guernsey International Insurance Association and the director of Willis in Guernsey. Um, and a captive veteran, I have served several decades standing, um, and I will be on hand to provide a sort of more generalist view along the way. Um, we've got a, a range of interactive widgets uh, available for you to engage with us today, and I would encourage everyone to, to make this as interactive a session as we can. Um, I'm sure the panel are very keen to um, give you their own messages, but equally, uh, you will be very keen to hear them answer the questions that you've got. Um, after the session, the, the panel session, there will be a QA. and a um, So we would ask you to submit your questions for the speakers using the Q&A widget on the console, um, which hopefully you can find. Um, and then um, for further information on Guernsey's offering, you can download our brochures available uh, on the resource widget, uh, and you can refer a colleague uh, using the refer a colleague widget uh, if you think they'll be interested in discussions taking place today. Uh, your feedback is very important to us, so please fill out the survey as well, uh, which I'll remind you of again at the end. Um, so without further ado, I shall introduce um, our, uh, our uh, moderator. I don't know whether uh, Richard has managed to sort out the problems with his camera, but if not, he's, a, he's a, an invisible moderator. But the, our moderator today is Richard Kutcher. Um, many of you will be aware that he has been reporting and commenting on Captive Matters for many years. He's a former editor of Captive Review and has held a number of key technical roles at AMIC and now, of course, is um, developing a, a strong reputation as the editor, founder and presenter of the Global Captive podcast. Um, we couldn't be in better hands. Uh, so I shall pass you now over to Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Dominic. And thank you to Guernsey Finance for inviting me to moderate this panel. I can only apologise that you can't see me, although it's probably a relief more than anything else. It's much more important we see our, our four expert speakers, who I'll come to in a second. Um, I'm very fond of the island, and it's safe to say Guernsey will be the first domicile I'll be taking the Global Captive podcast to when we return to some semblance of normality, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, we have a really strong panel of speakers, as Dominic briefly mentioned, uh, both from Guernsey and outside of the island. As Dominic said, I am Richard Kutcher, executive producer of the Global Captive podcast, and I'm very happy to be moderating. Joining us today to primarily discuss the harmony market and substance elements in Guernsey are Mike Johns, who is chairman of the Guernsey Insurance Association, GEAR, will be representing the captive industry on island. Mike is also director of Willis Towers Watson Management Guernsey. We also have, based out of Dublin, Kieran Healy, director of Client Solutions Europe, Middle East, and Africa at Aon Global Risk Consulting, and certainly one of the continent's leading captive consultants, and providing a further international perspective on the of the interests in and attitudes towards captives is James Battersby, chief broking officer with a focus on. Central and Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa for Willis Towers Watson. And of course, uh, Dominic Wheatley, Chief Executive of Guernsey Finance, who you've already heard from and, and will likely know well. Now, as mentioned, our two main areas of focus in the next 50 minutes or so is going to be the hardening market and the latest substance developments in Guernsey. For around 18 months prior to the pandemic, of course, uh, 
taking hold of the economy and creating many additional insurance challenges and controversies, we were already certainly in the grip of a hardening market uh, in many, many lines, if not all of them. Um, Kieran, I'm interested to know from you first how both the hardening market in 2019 was already manifesting itself in relation to new captive interest, and secondly, uh, what impact the pandemic has then had uh, regarding further hardening on those discussions. Hi, Eric. Thanks for that, Richard. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, like the, the hardening market has been much spoken about, and particularly in the last 12 months in particular, um, we're seeing a huge amount of interest in, in captives as a result. I think what we've been seeing pretty much across the board is shrinking capacity, increasing rates, um, a lot of insurers forcing higher deductibles, um, and even in some lines of business and some industries, coverage disappearing um, or becoming unsustainably priced. So, you know, these are all the perfect um, sort of uh, conditions for a captive. Um, so we've seen a huge amount of interest. Clearly, it's been impacted a bit by the whole coronavirus, COVID-19 situation. Um, so firstly, some companies, you know, if you think particularly in certain industries like retail, uh, hospitality, travel, for, for example, like they're clearly deeply impacted and are probably just um, focused on their very survival. So captives and risk finance probably isn't a priority right now. Um, and then for others, um, it's been, a, I suppose, a bit of a speed bump to, to the interest in captives because even those that weren't as badly affected, I think there was a phase of uh, adaptation um, and figuring out just what the extent of this um, kind of lockdown situation was going to have on business before they kind of moved forward. Um, but I'd say that over the last month or so in particular, like I think companies have been coming out of that sort of adaptation phase. They're returning to their organizational objectives. Um, and risk and insurance, as we know, is, is a sort of, it's either compulsory or business critical for you know almost every organization. So um, with that said, and, and looking at the extent of the challenges in the market, you know, companies are, are, are thinking about captives. And um, I'd even go so far as to say that for many, it's becoming more than just a point of interest. It's, it's actually becoming a necessity. Um, and captives, as I said, are, are kind of coming back to their core um, kind of reason for, for existing in the first place and helping um, companies figure out how to finance risk in an alternative way when the market is is uh, is being difficult. So, um, yeah, no, it, it's it's been a good time for, for the captive industry um, over the last 18 months. And I think it, it looks like a COVID situation now. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my take on it, Richard. Thank, thank you, Kieran. Um, Mike, obviously you're on Ireland and in your role both at GEAR and uh, with your role day to day at Willis Towers Watson as captain manager on Ireland, you obviously see a lot of this uh, formation activity um, come to fruition or, or not, I guess. How, how much of the increase in formation activity or at least interest in forming new captives in 2019, 2020, do you think has been as a direct result of the hardening market? Morning, everyone. Um, well, Richard, I think I think it's fair to say the majority of it is um, almost all of it. Um, we we've we've seen the hardening market develop, as Kieran said, probably eighteen months, maybe two years. Started with primarily professional indemnity. Um, some of the construction companies, in particular, were experiencing phenomenal rate increases, um, and. That made them start looking at retentions and um, extent of cover, 
And um, yeah, so you know, it's been it's been a busy busy time. Which which just commenting on the COVID question you asked about uh, with, with Kieran, it's been a busy time even through that for us. Um, I, I've spoken to my colleagues within the association um, and within uh, Willis Towers Watson and. Everyone seems to have maintained um, pipeline business interest throughout the COVID um, lockdown that we've experienced here. Um, so the interest is definitely there. And, it, and my experience is it's driven by um, the hardening market rather than a fresh interest in, in captives. Yeah, Thank, thank you, Mike. Um, I've had a question in regarding where some of that interest is, is manifesting itself in regarding particular domiciles. And we're going to talk a bit more about domiciles later on, so we're going to come to that question specifically towards the end. Um, Kieran, for existing captive owners, obviously, um, Hardy Market's always really interesting to talk about regarding prompting new formations. That's quite exciting stuff for us. But of course, existing captive owners are experiencing the same hardening market. So how are you seeing their strategies uh, differ or alter in response to the hardening market if they've already got their captive in place? Yeah, well, um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, this this is sort of the prime conditions for a captive and sort of the reasons why captives were set up in the first place. Um, so for the last 10 or so years, I've been talking to prospective captive owners about, you know, the benefits of a captive and, you know, that this day will come sort of thing. Um, so for those who've sort of persevered with their captive um, through the, the very soft cycle we've seen over the last few years or who have set it up just before this has happened, I think it, it's sort of payback now for that sort of foresight or, and, and understanding the captive is a long-term strategy. So all of those existing captive owners are, you know, I think it's fair to say, typically speaking, in a much better position to deal with the challenges that I, I spoke about earlier. Um, so what we're seeing is, you know, a deepening of the retention on lines that are already there. So, you know, using analytics, figure out the optimal retention on the lines that are already in there. Um, so that's just, you know, I suppose, flexing to the market dynamics. But we're also seeing then existing captive owners look at um, new lines. So, you know, particularly if we think the, the lines that kind of spring to mind that are probably most distressed at the moment, you know, directors and officers is, you know, extremely difficult to place. US listed companies are basically can't get coverage uh, at the moment. Um, professional indemnity is also extremely distressed market at the minute. So lines like that are starting to be looked at in a way maybe they were recently. Um, so we're seeing a bit of a diversification in, in current captive owners book. And interestingly, and I think this is this is sort of a positive development, we're already starting to talk with some existing captive owners about risk financing in this kind of post-COVID world, if you want to call it that. So how can companies use a captive to protect against the sort of widespread disruption that we're seeing at the minute? And is there a way we can pre-fund this sort of black swan, this you know somewhat unidentified black swan in the future? So there's a lot of work. We're doing a lot of work at the minute with some of the larger captive owners about you know exactly that, using the captive on a portfolio basis and thinking holistically about risk to kind of finance it in a way that, that just gives the company that little bit of balance sheet, sheet resilience. Um, which I think is, is really positive and puts the captive into the kind of center of thinking about how a, a company can deal with these kind of events. So, um, you know, I think the captive is becoming more and more um, prominent within the organization as a result, which is which is obviously positive from our perspective. 
Thank you. Thank you, Kieran. Um, James, Guernsey is certainly well known as kind of the go-to hub for UK PLC-owned captives, but it is, of course, also popular internationally with captives owned by companies from continental Europe, China, South Africa, the Americas. James, I believe you were also involved uh, recently in, in a captive formation last year that was set up by a Middle Eastern company. Uh, can you just tell us maybe a little bit about that and how that came about? Sure. Um, thanks, Richard, and morning, everyone. Um, yes, so the client I was involved in was a, or is a Middle Eastern-based uh, uh, heavy industry client, and they had a number of the issues that uh, Kieran uh, dealt with in terms of uh, deductibles, uh, market uh, constraints, so they had a very big market uh, insurer that left the uh, that stopped underwriting. And so they were left in a position of, of really uh, having to think about how they were going to sort their insurance out going forward. And the captive seemed like an obvious uh, way to, to help them do that. Um, and, it, and it's a process that took, you know, the, the formation of the captive was last year, but actually the conversation with them had been going on for probably 18 months to two years before that. So there was an awful lot of work that took place a lot of back and forth, discussion at board level, at operating level, just to try and understand you know, where the various pinch points were. Again, Kieran and Mike have both mentioned analytics, uh, a lot of work done with actuaries to try and understand what retentions should look like, um, a lot of conversation with insurers to try and best understand you know, where, the, despite what the analytics said, was it actually backed up by real world examples where the insurers felt that the retentions that were being spoken about were going to be meaningful. And I should say we're talking about property here as well, rather than some of the more, um, some of the other lines of business that, that Kieran spoke about. So it, this was, um, it was very much just aimed at a single issue at the time around property and the hardening of the property market. Um, you know, I think COVID as well is a really interesting point because I, I wonder in, in certain industries, Richard, whether, you know, if I, if, if I was having this conversation with this particular client in their heavy industry now, whether, you know, the, the prospect of them putting $20 million of share capital up and available for a captive, whether it would cause them to kind of pause and, and consider just from a cash flow perspective for them. I appreciate, again, Kieran's absolutely spot on. I think there are nuanced views around, around different industries and different industry sectors. But I, I think certainly for this particular industry sector, I think if they'd have been setting up the captive now and the board had been asked to stump up $20 million of share capital, I, I think that it, it might have caused them to go, thanks, but we'll, we'll, we'll delay for a period of time. Thank goodness they didn't, and they, they took the view last year, and, and I think they are reaping the benefits of that now. Thank you, James. Richard, uh, Richard sorry, can I just come in on that? Um, I, think it, I think it's fair to say that um, there probably would be a pause, but I think it's important to stress as well that um, there is still a phenomenal amount of interest out there and people actually forming captives as we, as we speak. So COVID is not all doom and gloom. Um, you know, the, the, the positive message is that people are looking at their risk financing structure 
they were probably doing it before COVID. COVID has focused their mind rather than turn their minds against investing capital. Yeah, there will be restrictions on how they invest that capital, but we're definitely seeing a positive um, upward trend in captive formation. And um, I, I think that's really good for the island and the industry. Thank you, Mike. And I think um, we've already had a couple of questions in regarding, which I think will further emphasise the value of captives at this time, is how a captive can be used to support cash flow problems at the parent level, um, regarding whether that be loan backs uh, or dividend payments. And again, I do want to come on to that. I'll come on to that a bit later in the Q&A section, because I think that's a very important message that the value captives can bring, aside from the obvious insurance um, support. James, on this uh, particular uh, captive that was formed last year in Guernsey. Obviously, um, Guernsey might look, um, might look. Yeah, I'm not sure what the options are nowadays, really, for Middle Eastern companies and forming captives closer to home. But why was Guernsey seen as the, as the right domicile uh, for them? They had, they had four choices, really. So they um, are a Bahraini company, and um, there is captive legislation in Bahrain, um, relatively untested. I think there was... Uh, there is one captive in Bahrain that's been formed, but it is it is in hibernation effectively, doesn't do anything. And I think there is one captive manager, but clearly he can't be very busy or she can't be very busy. Um, and, and and so that really left them with a choice of around the sort of what I would consider to be the sort of major international domiciles. Um, and it was really based around where they had uh, operations elsewhere. So they had uh, op they have operations in Hong Kong, so they thought about Singapore. Uh, they have operations in um, in Atlanta, so they thought about Bermuda. And although they don't have operations in the UK, a lot of their banks are located in London. And so, um, you know, th there are managements are in are in London visiting banks kind of once a quarter or so. So, I think clearly man their management teams are in all of those locations. So attending board meetings wasn't a particularly big concern. What they felt was that Guernsey just offered them the best fit for for what they wanted. They had, uh, and it, it, all of the domiciles, I think, offer much the same kind of thing. But for them, it was, it was just the best fit um, strategically around where they were and where they would be traveling to, to the most. Um, and, and then the ease of of getting to Guernsey from from London was seen as being a, a huge positive market in the Middle East and and your other markets. Um, is that is that something which has been replicated across across all markets now? Um, I would say for the um, so yes and no. So I, I, I would characterise my markets in Central Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa in kind of two ways really. One is the, the more complex end of the market. Um, which you could say is being more sort of captive-centric or potentially captive-centric, there is definitely some tightening of markets uh, in, in those areas, um, and, and especially where you need to involve international markets. So you're not just relying upon your own local uh, market, wherever you may be, in, uh, you know, in, in, in wherever that may be, whatever your country is. And then you've got the... the the risks which can be dealt with specifically within your local market. And, and within those markets, we're seeing that the that, that rates there are, yes, they might be ticking slightly upwards, but it's not, 
it's not to the same extent as the as what we're seeing in the in the international markets where the uh, i think we're moving from hardening to hard now in some lines well, thank, thank you, James. And we've already had lots of questions in uh, through the console, which we are going to come to. We've had questions relating uh, further questioning regarding the uh, regulatory and domicile options in the Middle East, particularly regarding Dubai. So, Kieran and James, get your thinking hat on that for later. And we've also had questions in regarding the investment markets uh, environment. And um, as I mentioned before, questions regarding how captors can support their parents through the COVID-19 crisis and on issues such as cash flow. So we are going to try and come to those towards the end. Um, but I do want to just move on to our, our second main topic of this discussion, which is substance and substance developments in Guernsey particularly. Dominic, substance has been a real buzzword in 2018 and 2019, and not just in Guernsey, but all major captive jurisdictions. What, what do we mean by, for a, kind of a, a quick 101 for those not familiar, what do we mean by substance in this context and, and why is it particularly important in today's captive insurance market? Well, the... Um... The issue of substance is, is concerns the, um, the the key operations of the captive being undertaken in the jurisdiction, uh, so that its location and, and in in particular its tax location um, is um, a matter of business fact rather than just a matter of geographical convenience. And um, so, what um, what? The rules are looking to do is to establish that the key decision-making and governance processes are located. So you would expect, therefore, uh, the guidance and rules to indicate that the directors involved in board meetings should be present in those jurisdictions um, and should uh, and, and should be making those decisions in those jurisdictions. That the key underwriting decisions and operational decisions and most of the key um, uh, operations are taking place in the location. Um, and this has become, as you say, a buzzword because of the, uh, the European Union's uh, review of many domiciles uh, um, that, that they were interested in um, as, as having potentially um, unfair tax regimes um, and ones that were, uh, were not meeting the standards of tax residency that, that they, they think um, uh, should be applied. Um, and so they came up with um, a, a, a set of, pro of, of proposed guidelines and then assessed a lot of jurisdictions against them. Um, and, and I think the challenge for jurisdictions has been to apply those guidelines in a way uh, that is proportionate to the business being conducted, but meets the you know, really quite reasonable requirements of the international business community that if a company is tax resident in Guernsey, that the company is genuinely resident and operating in Guernsey, um, and uh, this is this is not a it's not a new phenomenon. Incidentally, my own um, my own recruitment as an underwriter back in 1995 by Willis in Guernsey was part of an upskilling on the underwriting side, which reflected a concern about the questioning of UK PLC captives. Uh, and their tax residency um, in in the mid 90s on the basis that uh, the the relationship was not properly arm's length and one of the ways that uh, one of the elements of of, uh, of substance then as it is indeed now is to actually show the um, uh, show that the underwriting decision is not only taken uh, formally 
but it, but in fact that the technical and professional skills are available within the insurance community of Guernsey to make those decisions uh, properly. Um, so it, it is it is a buzzword. It's a buzzword for entirely appropriate reasons, and it's a it's a challenge which I think uh, has uh, the best the best um, jurisdictions have not had a problem with because substance should have been an issue for them, um, both from a tax residency point of view and a regulatory point of view uh, four years before. Absolutely, Dominic. Um, and you're right, but of course, it's, this isn't a new phenomenon. Has there had to be, because it's become a buzzword and become it has become a bit more of a laser focus um, of maybe tax jurisdictions outside of the captive domiciles, has Guernsey had to take any specific steps recently to stay ahead of the game on this? Um, not, not really. As I say, we, we have always had, um, certainly in my time at Guernsey, we've had uh, a very clear view that we were a, a jurisdiction of substance. We have over a thousand insurance people um, working in our insurance industry locally, and we have very high levels of qualification, uh, and we have all of the skills necessary here on the island um, in terms of actuarial, uh, legal, accounting, and so on. Um, so th th it is it is a a hub of captive insurance that wherein all of the professional um, capabilities are available. And the, the, what we have had to do is just to clarify uh, and encode some of the, of the practices uh, that were already present here uh, so that the EU could, could verify that they were required rather than just uh, the operation of, of, of best practice on effectively a voluntary basis. Uh, that encodement has, has you know, been a, a process to go through. Um, obviously, the, the outcome of that came out um, in March last year when we were uh, whitelisted by the EU, uh, which was, I think, a, a very good, uh, very good reflection of the the quality of, of substance that we have here. And has the uh, Guernsey Financial Services Commission had to had to play an increased or enhanced role in in ensuring that those substance requirements are, are in place? I think. Um, Proper and appropriate regulation is part of substance. I think you, know, you, you cannot operate a, a regulated finance business and expect people to take it seriously if the regulation is not of uh, appropriate uh, good quality. Um, so the, the fact that we have a regulator that regulates um, in, in ways that are entirely consistent with the IAIS core principles, uh, indeed, um, Guernsey Financial Service Commission is a founder member of the IAIS, uh, which uh, I probably ought to clarify for those of you who don't know that stands for the insurance, the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, um, and, uh, and and has been very instrumental in developing the, the specific, uh, the, the 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 generic core principles and indeed the the specific principles that apply to captive insurance, um, but also because uh, they have taken um, those principles seriously and have looked for. Uh, local provision of key regulated functions, um, they, then you know, that there hasn't it hasn't been necessary for us to change business plans in any substantial way. So the GFSC, in in the way it regulates properly, the the substance exercise a relatively simple one for us. But I'm not aware that they've had to change any specific regulations to meet substance requirements. Thank you, thank you, Dominic. Um, now, it, it, yeah, sorry. Sorry, um, just to clarify, 
um, substance won't be um, regulated by the GFSC. Um, the actual reporting of, of substance is done through Guernsey um, Tax uh, Authority, um, and they have specific returns. That information is shared with the GFSC, but our discussions with the GFSC have, have confirmed that uh, the GFSC won't actually be um, a, a regulating force as far as substance is concerned. And I think that's important to, to clarify. Um, the other thing, just I'm sorry, I was interrupted whilst um, Dominic was, was was speaking. A delivery man decided to drop something off outside the door and tap on the door. But um, uh, the the other thing to to get across is that all of the managers in Guernsey have been operating under what the provisions of substance um, has has probably set out more formally. I would say. Um, we, we've all been operating on the majority of, of the requirements for, well, since I've been in the industry, 25 years. So um, it, it hasn't been a, a major, major thing for us in Guernsey to actually come and, and, and accommodate. And um, the, the nuance to that has been the virtual meetings, because um, the, the regulations stipulate that the quorum for a meeting should be physically in Guernsey. Well, that's clearly not been possible with COVID. So um, we've actually, uh, all, all of the managers have, have put um, statements within the minutes of the meetings to reflect that people were prevented from traveling because of COVID. But hopefully we'll return to physical meetings fairly shortly. Absolutely, yeah. That 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 particular um, issue, Mike, regarding uh, board meetings on island is, a, is, a, is an issue that domiciles all around the world have had to be grappling with recently, and we've seen fast action from regulators and tax authorities to, to recognise extraordinary uh, times and extraordinary meetings in, in that regard. So I think it's important to mention. Um, Kieran, bringing it back to kind of how all of this impacts uh, captive formation and domiciling activity, one of the outcomes of the post-BEPS world is, is more pressure and scrutiny on domicile choices by tax authorities at home. We've seen in Europe a degree, and I say a degree because I've not been that convinced that much action's actually followed, but a degree of interest um, and prompting towards home domiciling. So if you're a French company domiciling in France, if you're a German company putting your captive in Germany, for example, is that actually manifesting itself in anything more than, than just talk? I know we've seen one example of a, a French captive being formed relatively recently. Um, yeah, there's been one this year that in france i think obviously germany has and has had for quite some time its own population of captives um you think in norway most norwegian captives are in norway so it, it does happen but as a new phenomenon i wouldn't i'd agree with your your view that it, it's not something that's really taking hold um i think from a tax perspective, the tax departments and companies always would prefer it. But I think the realities and the practicalities are very different uh, from that being something that you can actually make happen. So, you know, in my role, I suppose I, I travel around Europe and talk to prospective captive owners and, and the whole BEPS substance tax um, debate is becoming more and more kind of prominent in, in the domicile decision. But, you know, what heartens me is that the, the I suppose the value of the domicile and with that the value of a good captive management infrastructure should, such as the one that Guernsey has um, is still the most important aspect. You know, running an insurance company, a regulated entity 
it requires expertise it requires a kind of um level of uh i suppose service providers and the infrastructure that dominic mentioned uh, earlier so you know particularly in places like guernsey where there's innovation happening as well um, you're not going to get that in a home domicile so some of the things that guernsey have been kind of instrumental in leading over the last few years and you think of you know pccs iccs you're not going to get that level of innovation when you have a very small population being run in the home domicile where you, you just don't get that sort of infrastructure so the decision then comes down to do you want to employ your own people in your home location um, and, and sort of try and run the captive that way or do you um you know lean on experienced service providers um, who can kind of navigate you through the whole annual cycle of a captive and who do it for many other captives so for me it's a sort of a, a no-brainer but it takes a little bit of time in bringing uh, some prospective captive owners, particularly their tax department, around to that way of thinking. And, and it is becoming more of a challenge, but I don't see the domicile kind of um, standings being eroded too much in the near future, Richard. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, Mike, on, on the same on the same topic, you obviously will hear from your colleagues at uh, Willis Towers Watson and from other brokers when they're considering different domicile choices for a, for a prospective captive owner. What what should be the the, the obvious things that uh, prospective captive owners should be looking for in a good jurisdiction? I think um, I think Kieran's nicked some of my lines there. Um, <laughs> I think uh, primarily their 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 um, consideration has to be um, the the experience of the domicile. Um, uh, the, the regulator in particular is an is an important um, factor. Uh, to, to me, the regulator we have here in Guernsey is fantastic. We've got uh, a regulator that's approachable. Um, they are um, keen to, to develop the insurance industry, but at the same time, they're keen to um, make sure that all of the regulations are adhered to. So um, being a flexible, approachable regulator is important. Uh, the ability to innovate within the industry on the island, I think, is is in, important consideration. Um, the experience of the infrastructure, um, the manager um, in particular. You know, it's all right coming and setting up a, a, a captive. Um, that's probably the easiest part. Uh, the next part is making that captive work, uh, making it grow, helping it grow. And um, what happens when you want to consider additional lines of business? And, and um, if you haven't got an experienced manager to actually do that, I think uh, I think your your actual captive is going to be uh, short-lived. Um, other things: um, solvency, um, the level of capital required to actually establish that will be a consideration. Um, you briefly min mentioned tax. Um, I don't really like talking about tax because. In my view, if you're setting up a captive for tax reasons, you're you're heading for a fall. But tax is a consideration um, for any group forming a captive. They need to know how how it's going to relate to their own um, tax obligations as as a group. So um, how how the domicile is tax uh, driven, and what what rate of tax is uh, applied is quite an important factor. Um, Guernsey currently has a zero rating for tax, so um, we tick, tick the box for, for many um, overseas clients on, on, on that respect. Um, 
legislation, uh, I think, is quite an important factor. Guernsey's got clear, um, easy to understand legislation across the board, not just um, for captives, but for, for insurance entities uh, per se. Um, we've actually just made it easier for managing general agents to actually form on the island as well. Um, so that approval process is, is being simplified. Um, the actual approval process, you know, if you try to, using, using your comments about forming onshore, if you try to form something onshore in the UK, you're looking at probably a year to, to get it past the FCA and the PRA. Um, in Guernsey, we can probably get something formed within um, six to eight weeks. Did I did I um, stall then? I, I, my screen froze. <laughs> no, no, you're all, you're all good there, right? Yeah, you're fine. We got all of that. Okay. Um, I think that was that was, an, that was a good exhaustive lift there. You got anything else to add, Mike? Before I move on? Um, yeah, I, I think the 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 important thing for for us here in Guernsey as well is um, we we've also got the ability to to migrate business in um, in or out. You know, so so if you form here, it gives you maximum flexibility. Um, you, you, should you form here and then um, decide at a later date that actually the circumstances are that you actually want to move onshore, then, then provided there, there is a, an agreement with, with your location, um, you can actually migrate the business both inwards and outwards from Guernsey. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to ask one more question from our, our kind of uh, our previous script to James. And I'm going to move on to our questions. We've had so many questions in. I really do want to get through as many of them as possible. And they're all on the topics we've already been discussing, but digging a bit deeper. So, James, just lastly, there's, there's been a lot of analysis on the um, of the effect, sorry, of the pandemic on clients and insurance markets. In, in the short term, what is your view on the short-term effect on key corporate insurance markets and specifically business interruption? It's obviously been a very high profile in the news, this interruption insurance issues. Yes, uh, and not unreasonably either. Um, you know, I, I think first and foremost, business interruption clearly is that your business interruption or your PD, your BI policy is triggered normally by, a, by some physical damage event. So you have to have physical damage in order for the business interruption element of your policy to respond. And for the most part, the, there is no physical damage to the property that is caused or that has happened, and therefore BI is not triggered through that mechanism. Some insurance policies have a, a non-damage business interruption element, but for the most part, they're few and far between, first and foremost, but for the most part, they are also normally quite heavily sublimited. And so you know, even if you are lucky enough, in inverted commas, to have a non-damage BI element to your policy, you probably don't get much in the way of, of, of actual cover. In a captive context, clearly your captive can choose to write insurance covers or you can, can choose to do kind of what it would like to do. Um, it's up to the captive and whatever the parent company would like it to do. The impact, of course, on that is, is then how, if, if, the, if the market, the insurance market is sitting above a, a captive retention in the aggregate, you need to think about how the non-damage business interruption erodes or does not erode, as the case may be, the captive aggregate. Um, but, you know, so I definitely think that um, 
going, returning to your original question from a BI perspective, you know, what we're seeing in the market already are a confluent, a huge number of, of BI exclusions or of, of pandemic exclusions, rather, sorry. Um, so looking to, to exclude all sorts of pandemic. Um, and largely it's overwriting a lot, of the, a lot of the comfort that the market had arrived at over a number of years of experience. So what you might see, for example, is that now it's just excluding pandemic, whereas previously you might have got some kind of uh, disease cover in there through, say, legionnaires might have been uh, allowable under a policy. What we're seeing is that a lot of uh, exclusions at the moment are just doing away with everything. M my suspicion is that, it'll, that the, the needle will move quite a long way to the, to the right in, in the exclusions, and it will then start to come back a little bit uh, more towards somewhere a little bit more sensible. Um, from a rating environment, I, I, I think the, the, uh, the market will continue to harden. Um, it, industry is suggesting that the, the, the losses that are resulting from, uh, from this particular pandemic will, you know, the numbers are mind-boggling, but they're also very different in their spread. Um, so, but I think most people agree that it is going to be one of the, if not the biggest insurance event ever. Um, and, and so consequently, to think that there will be no impact on insurance rates in the future is, you know, I suspect is probably a bit pie in the sky. Um, what that will look like, I think, will depend upon, to a large extent, what reinsurance renewals look like. So, you know, I've really got my eye on uh, the, the big reinsurance renewals that will take place really, well, they take place throughout the year, but for um, uh, for sort of the European insurers, largely towards the end of this year, I think we'll start to see what price increases look like there. And they will then, I'm sure, start to drip into, uh, into the direct insurance markets. Um, I hope that answers the question for you, Richard. Yes, yes, thank you, James. Um, okay, what I'm going to try and do is, is go through as many of these questions. I've grouped a few of them together as we can in, in the remaining 15 minutes. So I appreciate if my speakers can try and hit the point quickly as possible. We'll get through as many as possible. So, Kieran, you're first up. And we've had a couple of questions in uh, early on at the beginning of this session regarding uh, the pandemic. Obviously, lots of corporates facing major cash flow challenges, um, and many of them have large captives sitting there on uh, maybe you know large capital piles and possibly uh, a, a surplus if they're lucky as well. How, how have we seen captives supporting parents with regards to cash flow, whether that be through loan backs or, or dividend payments? And, and importantly, if they are looking to do that, how do, you, how do uh, the regulators view that in regards to what needs to be left in the captive? Is it just a case of the minimal capital requirement needs to stay there? Can you just talk us through that briefly? Yeah, sure, Richard. Well, clearly there was this huge cash flow issues over the last few months. And as you said, there's many captives who, you know, doing the right thing, were able to kind of develop a little bit of surplus in there. So to give some relief to the company, to the parent during the kind of distressed time, um, we saw quite a, quite a bit of loan backs and um, dividends being the two primarily, the two main mechanisms to get kind of cash back into the company. Um, in terms of the regulatory perspective on it, um, very simply, you can go down to whatever is allowable in terms of your your, your 
kind of regulatory capital requirements. But I think most companies and, and in Guernsey with their own solvency capital assessment um, have their own view of what the economic uh, capital requirement of the captive is um, as di- distinct from the regulatory capital. So you come up with what you think you need to have based on your risk profile, which is normally um, a little bit higher than the, the regulatory requirement. And you use that as the, let's call it the, the floor, the, the minimum threshold of capital that you have on the captive. So that would be the kind of the main way you would do it. And, and the OSCE obviously has a bit of, um, I suppose, uh, scenario testing in there um, so that if, if a, you know, an unexpected claim happened um, whilst the captive was loaning back funds to the to the group, it should still be um, solvent and able to uh, trade and meet its regulatory requirements. So, in a nutshell, Richard, that that's kind of the way it's been it's been happening. Uh, if that answers the question. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Kieran and Mike. Regarding what you're seeing on Ireland in regards to um, loan backs or dividends uh, being actioned, are you seeing inquiries in that regard? Um, we have seen loan backs, definitely, um, and obviously uh, companies always have the option to to request a dividend anyway. But um, I think through we've just actually gone through the the um, year end audit process for a lot of our clients. Um, the auditors, in particular, have asked um, quite a few questions about how the company and how the parent. Um, is going to be affected by COVID-19. So that has put an onus on the directors of the companies to actually consider the capital levels within their companies um, properly, not that they didn't before, but more more with COVID in mind as well. So calculations like the OSCAR that we have here in Guernsey, the own solvency capital adequacy uh, calculation, those have all come to the fore. Um, the regulation COVID issued um, a thematic on um, pointing boards in certain directions about how they should actually consider uh, loan backs to parents um, and um, what the consideration should be. Um, they do they do agree to them, um, and it is possible to do it. But I think in in this current environment, um, just to simply say you can take the spare capital back. Um, to the parent, um, it, it certainly won't be done without the board asking questions, put it that way, the captive board, I mean. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I'm going to stay with you for the, the next question. I think this should be quite a quick one. Is there a general kind of min- regarding captive formations, is there a recognised kind of minimum level of, of captive premium that would be needed to set up a, a captive? That's quite a common question, I believe. Yeah, that's... that's um... That's a that's that's a question we face quite often. Um, it depends. If you want to set up a full captive, I think you're looking at excess of five hundred, six hundred thousand pounds of premium. Um, but the, the answer really is it depends on the line of business and um, what the claims experience has been prior to you um, heading down the captive route. If you want to set up a cell, the actual operating costs of a cell are lower. Uh, and we usually say 250, 300,000 pounds is the minimum you should be considering a, a sale captive for. Um, and the reason for that um, is primarily setting up costs and um, then, you know, the expertise that you get from us as managers, you, you have to pay management fees for that. 
Um, so to get an underwriting profit, the lower the premium is, the, the harder it gets. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to consider why you're setting up that vehicle in the first place, really. Um, so the lower the premium, I, I think 250000 is probably the minimum that I would recommend anybody, but it would depend on what the line of business is. Thank Kieran, you. I don't know if you've got anything. Thank you, Mike. I'll, I'll, bring, on, I'll bring on Kieran on something else in a moment. Um, Mike, just one more question to you. Obviously, we're in a work-from-home environment, although Guernsey is obviously get, getting back up and running a lot quicker than a lot of other countries uh, in Europe at the moment. H how has that impacted um, the kind of formation and licensing process? Has the, F has the GFSC been able to continue kind of business as usual? Has, that, has it had any impact on the, uh, the, the speed of, of license approvals and formations? Um, no, I think it's the, the the simple answer to that. I think the um, the the impact um, has been absorbed by the commission extremely well. Um, they had a split team working um, at the commission throughout, so some people were working at home, some people were working at uh, the office, um, and they've actually improved their turnaround time uh, over the last couple of weeks, which. Within industry, we're all delighted with, uh, which which is fantastic, really. So we were looking before COVID at perhaps a lengthier uh, application process, but the commission made a couple of changes within um, within the actual authorization authorizations division, um, and that seems to have speeded things up quite quite well, actually. So they've done they've they've reacted really well throughout the whole whole of the COVID um, saga, really. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, another question for James. Uh, going back to the Middle Eastern discussion, um, you mentioned that uh, Bahrain would have been one option for them uh, at home, and they chose Guernsey. And one of the questions was just simply, what about Dubai? I know we've heard quite a bit in the past about Dubai as a captive domicile. It hasn't seemed to have taken off, but can you tell us the latest options there? Yeah, I mean, I mean Dubai was considered. It was on the, on the longer list. Um, and whilst it offers... Um, more than Bahrain, it's a more established domicile than Bahrain, what this particular client was looking for was um, sort of entrenched knowledge, expertise and flexibility. And it was felt that Guernsey kind of won on all of those. And so whilst the client was keen to support regional, um, uh, in regional management, that they felt that they were so new into this that it was such a step into the unknown for them as a client that they that they really wanted the kind of the comfort blanket that came with working with a with a, a domicile like Guernsey or Bermuda or Singapore, um, and, and so that was it really. So it wasn't a, an anti-Dubai um, uh, decision; it was more of a pro-Guernsey decision, I guess. Fantastic. Well, thank you, uh, James, for that final comment. And thank you to all of my panellists. We've had so many questions in. I think I managed to group together about half of them. Uh, there were a few more there. And uh, what we might do is see us on the panellists and get back on some of those questions maybe offline afterwards. Uh, but I'd just like to say thank you to Mike, Kieran and James. And, and Dominic, Cam, back over to you for your final flourish, I guess. Thanks, Richard. Um, thank you. Thanks very much, Thanks, uh, Richard, you. and um, a huge thank you to all of our panellists, Kieran, James, uh, Mike. 
um, I think that was a, a pretty good um, a pretty good run through of, of the agenda for today. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of current issues uh, issues um, covered. What we will do is we'll gather together all of the the, the questions, uh, and we will have uh, the panel uh, opine in writing on them, and we will get that out to um, all of the the people who've registered um, as as a one of our our post event. Um, posting so that you can actually see. So if you if you have had a, a question that we didn't get to, don't worry, you will get uh, an answer to that question. Um, uh, a big uh, a big thank you to um, uh, my team, incidentally, for arranging today. Um, they've had uh, a big learning curve through COVID nineteen uh, pandemic and lockdown, uh, where they've had to develop uh, the use of this technology, which I think. Um, has worked really very well today. It's a, a, a great platform, and hopefully you have enjoyed uh, the experience and been able to follow what's going on. And um, I would be shocked if I didn't remind you of our next um, insurance-related event, which is the ILS Insight webinar on the 2nd of July. Um, and again, uh, we will be um, giving handy details out uh, about that, but also you can find details on our website uh, we are Guernsey.com, and uh, today's uh, webinar will also be available post-event on demand uh, on a link via the website as well. Just to say that uh, we have, um, you know, we, we have had a. a I've, I've certainly had a very interesting time to chatting today, uh, and I think that uh, we've we've given things a good a good airing. Uh, I hope that you've all enjoyed it, and I'd like to thank uh, every one of you for uh, for attending and supporting us on this event today. Uh, it would have been an absolute waste of time without you. Uh, hopefully see you again soon in the future, uh, and uh, look forward to you joining us on the 2nd of July. So from me, have a very, very good day.